hello, welcome to Pod Academy. 40 years ago, Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs with the intention of creating a drug-free world. Yet despite the time and money spent enforcing this prohibition, drugs are still readily available all around the globe. In fact, with an estimated value of around $321 billion a year, the illegal drug trade is considered by the UN to be the third biggest market in the world, trailing only the arms and oil industries. An increasing number of high-profile activists, including former presidents and UN officials, are now calling for an alternative to the war on drugs. Further to this, on the 6th of November, two American states, Washington and Colorado, voted to legalise the recreational use of marijuana. Coming from the country that has advocated and policed the drug war internationally, this development is being hailed by some as a turning point in our attitude towards drug policy. Sue Price's book, Fixing Drugs, The Politics of Drug Prohibition, assesses the arguments which prop up the drug war. In this podcast, Sue talks to Roger Howard, Chief Executive of the UK Drug Policy Commission, about the political and personal aspects of the drug problem. So, your book, Fixing Drugs, The Politics of Drug Prohibition, can you just tell us what led you to researching and writing the book? Well, I was a lecturer in politics anyway, but this wasn't a particular area of interest even to me. But my son became a heroin addict. He got picked up by the police one night. He didn't see a solicitor, but he did ask them to phone home and say he'd got picked up. Well, I knew that meant that he'd got picked up for drugs because I knew he was using ecstasy and cannabis so we searched his room before the police arrived to do it and found green liquid which tasted okay but I've no idea what it was then of course it was methadone but I didn't know that and lots and lots of tinfoil with lines on it which meant absolutely nothing to me I was that ignorant of drugs but my husband who was in the air force knew instantly because they'd been told about drugs so we discovered he was a heroin addict and I just thought oh that, that's okay we'll get him we'll get him treatment and it'll all be sorted how wrong I was first of all 10 years ago the treatment wasn't available the national treatment uh, agency gets slammed for lots of things but actually treatment did increase availability it doesn't mean to say quality is always good but the availability but not just that, he was involved in selling ease to his friends and that was funding his drugs. So everything went from bad to worse. He went to prison, he went to various detoxes, um, rehabs, you know, you name it, Phoenix House, the Clouds House, a place in Norfolk. There was a priory in Nottingham, uh, the Nottingham Clinic, various things. Some we funded, some the state funded. But he's still using heroin. So during the time he was in prison, I trained to be a substance misuse counsellor. And when he came out, I was sure he would be off drugs. But the first thing he did with the money the prison gave him was school. So we went through all these things again. We've paid for lots of things for him, like courses in web design he's very talented in that direction but he still uses heroin and when he said to me when he was first when we first sort of said well you're addicted and I said that's okay we'll, we'll sort it you know it'll be sortable and he said 
I don't think I'll ever become not addicted. And I just, oh, phooey, nonsense. And now I'm beginning to think like that, you know. I. But that led me into just reading about drugs starting off and thinking about drug laws and thinking about politics and thinking about all this evidence out there and all the things people said publicly but didn't mean and the discrepancies between what politicians said about drugs and what they really thought about drug wars, drug policy was seemed to be such a gap and I suppose I just got interested in, in reading about it. And then I had an interview for I interview for a job in prison as a prison drug counsellor. And very near the time of the interview, I met somebody else who was an external examiner. And he said, why don't you create a course on politics and drugs and drug policy and teach it? And I thought, oh, I suppose so. I could do that. And that's what I did. And I teach narco-terrorism as well, which is a postgraduate course on the link between drugs and drug funding of terrorism. And it's a hugely popular course. Students are very interested in this subject. I know probably you think, oh, well, drugs are a sexy subject. Yes, students are going to be interested. But it's amazing how many of them have actually talked to me about they hadn't realised the impact of the drugs and the drug war on third world countries, developing nations that produces of drugs. They hadn't realised the discrepancies between what is a legal drug and what is an illegal drug. Being so flimsy, I take a daffodil and a dandelion and I say, OK, what's the difference? They're both yellow and they're both we might describe as flowers and a botanist would probably say there isn't a difference but convention says one's a weed and one's a flower so we treasure one and we try and pull the others up and chop them down and everything and in a way the difference between legal and illegal drugs is the same it's it's a social convention it's not pharmacologically determined we'll explore <laughs> more of the international stuff as as we go along and and some of that the links and how society views drugs like alcohol but if I can go back to your own personal experiences and just reflect on that you've been obviously on a an, on a painful journey at, Very. at times a, I'm a, still on it I'm a, still a, on indeed. it indeed but you're not alone in that there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of parents uh, around the United Kingdom who have gone through not a dissimilar experience that, that you have. Every every family is different, we all know that. But the thing that strikes me here, that, and, and when we come on, your book is very much a, a challenge to policymakers that we, in a sense, we can't go on the same way as we've gone before. What I find interesting is this whole field is littered with very polarised views. On one hand, we have people who might, we might call euphemistically liberal, and I class you in that thing. But yes, you, I think I But, but you, you may challenge that. But on the one hand, liberal. And then on the other hand, we have the caricature is very hardline. People take a very hardline approach. And I just wonder, 
how you would explain how you as a family and how you as an individual and, a, and, a, and a, an academic have reached the conclusion that the way things have been going is not sustainable. Yet there are other parents who have reached a very different conclusion who think we must ban these substances, we must make it really tough, we must lock people up because these are two caricature positions. Yet you and other families may have gone through the same experience and I'm wondering how you count. Is there anything that you think can explain why people go one route or another? It's very difficult to explain that. If you look at some of the support services, a lot of people, if you're a parent, would advise you to throw the addict out. Tough love. And some of the uh, support groups like Narcotics Anonymous say don't fund the habit. I can accept what they're saying, but I guess you can't divorce your child. If your child fell off a horse now I'm sure there'll be parents who if they heard this would say you've got no idea but if your child fell off a horse you don't just walk away from them and to me somebody like my son is a drug user he's not a rapist he's not a murderer he's just somebody there was a lot of drugs about I can't blame his friends he took it himself he moved from one drug to another I'm not saying that there's a a scale that everybody who uses cannabis will use heroin because some people go straight to heroin and some people use cannabis all their life and never use any other drug. It's just, it was there and he used the stuff. I've heard parents say the government must do something. I remember after the big methadrone scare um, just over 18 months ago, listening to one of the mums of one of the young people who died and they were saying the government should do something they should ban this and I had enormous sympathy for this mother she'd lost her son and she was a nurse so she had some idea of sort of the medical implications of everything but I thought why would banning it stop it my son's a heroin addict it's been banned for years has it stopped it no it's not going to stop it so you've just got to kind of face up to the fact and find other ways of living with it dealing with it and not ostracizing people who use drugs so would you describe yourself then as a as a if i can put it this way an arch pragmatist in policy terms, whereas some other people, they're sort of idealists, and and this might account for why yeah. there's a there's a sort of this polarity in in some way, and it's trying to get underneath the skin of why some people think the solution is crackdowns, and others think there's a different way to approach this. Part of me wants to kind of say people's instinct is to crack down it would be anybody's instinct but they're not familiar with the field and I think that I am from many ways not just on my academic side and reading and but from my personal experience and I I can't extrapolate my experience to everybody else But I can say my personal experience led me to read everything. And I thought there's a lot 
Well, let's go. <laughs> let's go into your book then, and and let's jump right to what struck me as somebody who's worked around this field for a number of years is is really quite interesting, and I think it's the first time I've ever seen it. I think articulated as such, but one core conclusion is there is no solution to the drugs problem. Tell us what you mean by that. What I mean by that is a lot of government is about managing problems. It's not about solving problems. Now, when politicians stand for election, they promise to solve things. They don't say, well, I don't really know what to do, but we'll have a look at the evidence. They sort of say, we need more prisons building, or we need more treatment, or we need more this, that, or the other. They don't come in without a sort of policy that's going to say something about solving the country's problems. And drugs are a problem, but they're a problem to be managed rather than solved, just as individual drug use has to be managed, sometimes more effectively, sometimes less effectively. So the country's problems and the world's problems with drugs, we have to manage them. We have to look at different ways of managing them. And I... Nothing will convince me that the drug war is managing anything. If anything, I think it's just made it a whole lot worse. I mean, I'm not looking at people in this country when I say that. I'm looking at people abroad, everywhere. I mean, who'd want to be living in Mexico? And it's moving from Mexico to Guatemala, you know, I mean... Well, let's pin down some of that. You, you, You talk about there's multiple harms that come from the UK and international global approaches to tackling drugs. Can you just elaborate a little bit on what you see those particular harms as being? There's quite a lot of them. I try to categorise them because I think it makes it more sort of readable and understandable. But by categorising them, it suggests that they are separate, whereas they're not. They all interconnect. But if we, look, if we just take social harm as a, as a starter, socially, what harm do drugs do? They have impact on families, and by that I don't mean mums and dads like me who are coping with a heroin addict son. I mean children who are coping with addicted parents. They have harms on communities where people are dealing drugs, stealing to support drug habits that they can't afford, prostituting themselves. There are health issues. This all comes under what I would call social. So social harms in communities. There are health harms by having a a sort of attitude of don't do drugs, just say no, they're bad for you. We don't actually explore the degrees of how harmful some substances might be. We don't say, well, actually, if you use them in these kind of circumstances, they are going to be considerably less harmful if you use them in this way. For example, if you smoke heroin rather than inject it, it's considerably less dangerous. You're not likely to get all these diseases from impure substance, and you're not likely to have an overdose. So there are ways of doing these things. That is not saying go out and be a heroin addict. It's saying, you know, there are harms. It's being honest. The other social harms, the the sort of spread of HIV from injecting users, sharing equipment, uh, spread of hepatitis C, the very fact that you don't know what you're injecting or taking, ingesting in any way, 
in terms of its strength. You don't know in terms of its purity, its quality, what's it been mixed with. All of those are social harms. Fear of being burgled, fear of being mugged. Crime is a social harm. You know better than me. I can't remember which politician said it, but you, know, you were talking there about being honest, and you were saying that uh, but that's absolutely critical, managing the problem um, rather than solving it. Somebody very famous said, we, we, we know what to do, we just don't know how to get re-elected. Yes, but I would say it's the job of politicians, and I actually think this is actually happening. We can look back probably in 30 years' time, I'll be dead, but Matt here can look back, and we can say, yes, the climate of opinion was changing. What happens if you want to change a policy? particularly a policy where you've spent a hundred years telling people that these substances are more harmful than anything else they could possibly take. When you've spent a hundred years doing that, you've got to change a climate of opinion. You cannot just say, OK, let's legalise all drugs. To do these things incrementally, you've got to kind of get people used to the idea of Maybe cannabis, maybe decriminalising, maybe decriminalising by stealth, which I think decriminalisation of possession by stealth has sort of crept in the back door at the moment here. You don't do it all in one go. Your organisation has produced a, a, a recent report looking over the past six years of your research, and that forms that is an opinion forming piece these are all contributing to a changing climate of opinion the leaders of the countries in south america some of what we call producer countries that means they are net producers they do use the drugs themselves there now and they have drug problems too but they're net exporters of, of drugs. Some of their leaders are now saying, we've got to change. All of that, if you imagine a great mesh of sort of lines coming in from all different directions, and then you've got a generation of people growing up who have used drugs, who know that they're not more dangerous than alcohol, that alcohol is dangerous, but people use it, tobacco is dangerous, people use it. Everything's dangerous. People like danger. We're human. That's but what I've we want. Also, a challenge here is I, I've come across a lot of people, younger people, you know, sort of middle-aged, with families, and in fact they're incredibly protective of their children, their younger children now, even though these people used drugs themselves, as you say, casually with no particular repercussions for them, or observable repercussions. But actually they're... They're quite tight on this, and then in fact, you know, they. What is it? Don't do as I do, do as I say. Parents have um, always had a prerogative on hypocrisy. Let's indeed, face it. indeed. I have tried not to do that with my children, and people would probably say, "Well, that's why you've got heroin addict." But I've also got a son who's married and has a perfectly normal life, and a he's brought up the same way. Yes. But so, I mean, one, one thing, if I can, that part of the problem on this debate. And what has been put back to me by a number of very senior politicians um, who've been Home Secretaries over the years is, in a way, we don't have the counterfactual. Of Be course, and, yes. and this is a, a real problem if we're thinking about evidence. 
and that we don't have the counterfactual what would happen if we didn't do something or we did it differently how are policymakers meant to act in in this situation where the cost of doing the wrong thing could be very very substantial not just to them politically but it could mean lives it could mean economies wrecked it could mean communities wrecked etc they could argue again as i've heard it say well we've kept the lid on the problem they have managed it they would they would argue Yes, and, and I don't entirely reject that argument. You can't measure what hasn't happened. And any discussion of change involves a degree of speculation. What's it going to be like? I think there is genuine fear that everybody will suddenly become drug addicts. I think that's wrong. I think probably more people will use drugs and a percentage will become addicted. But actually, if you said to politicians... What's the drug problem in this country? I'm not one, but I don't think they'd be talking about ecstasy or cannabis. They would be talking about crack users, heroin users, who deal and steal to support their habit because they tend to be the people for whom addiction becomes a major illness and they opt out of the system, they don't work... And then if everybody became like that, there's not enough worker bees. And clearly that's the problem that society might face. But you could say that with alcohol. Do you think the precautionary principle is wrong then to be applied here? Because, I mean, you raised the, the issue about alcohol. I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that they're like ships coming in different directions. If you look at what public health officials, lots of politicians, if you look in Scotland, if you look in Ireland... Here they are in those countries and in Australia and places like that wanting much, much stricter regulation and controls over alcohol and tobacco. And, and people would say, look, hang on a minute, yeah, we may not have started, if, if drugs were found now, we may not have started from the position we are, but there's lots of controls coming in from the alcohol, people wanting it from the alcohol side. And people are saying, well, let's hold the precautionary principle line because it could get emphatically worse. I guess it could. I, I, I think that that's, that's obviously going to be a risk. That's probably why I think incremental change might be the way forward, that you decriminalise. I've, I've never been terribly in favour of decriminalising possession. I'm only in favour of it as a sort of incremental step because I think it only would solve the going into prison because you've got drugs side of it. But you see, incremental change won't solve the problem of violence, systemic violence associated with the drug trade. It won't solve the problem of impurities of drugs and it won't solve the problem of not knowing the strength of a drug when you're buying a drug. Now tell us, you're talking about incremental change... What sort of steps do you think are going are going to help begin to get a different response? I don't have any immediate answers for this because I don't think legalization will fix the drug problem either. That's what I'm trying to say in the book. I think that nothing will fix it. It might manage some of it better. But when I see what alcohol has done to people and the 
violence it causes to families. I'm just horrified that actually you can walk in and buy alcohol. I've seen what alcohol does to people is astonishing and hugely depressing. And we talk about children brought up with heroin addict parents. We don't talk much about children brought up with alcoholic parents. I feel the alcohol problem has got out of control, but I think that can be managed. But there are fewer people. I mean, the, the level of alcohol use has been going down. Total sales has been going down, hasn't it? And in fact, drug use, we ought to be clear to the listeners, drug use is has been going down. It has been going down, which suggests that by giving people information, people seeing the effects, the poor effects, the bad effects, the harm these things do, people step back and think, yeah, I perhaps ought to control my use of this a bit more. Okay, let's let, let's go global a bit now. I think because okay. you know, because it's obviously you know, it's something you've studied uh, here. And again, for the listeners, many countries have banned various substances in their history, but they allow the use of others. Try and help help us understand how we went from that situation where one or where certain certain drugs are virtually universally banned and others aren't. And we could contrast Islamic societies and and the West and things like this. Just talk us through a little bit about how you think we got where we are today. It is extraordinary, actually. It's an interesting history that all drugs were semi-controlled, semi-legal, shall we say. There were some restrictions gradually developing towards the end of the 19th century. But countries did have their own pet drugs. The drugs that kind of had become customary use, like alcohol in the West, tobacco smoking. Once upon a time, tobacco smoking was a capital offence in Germany, in the Soviet Union, and... Similarly, alcohol was a capital offence in some countries. I think I'm right in saying Mexico at one point was. So why is it then that by 1909, everybody starts to buy into a particular menu of drugs? Why is it? Well, it would seem that it's partly determined by economics, which is no surprise, that at the time, China was a very closed society, still very closed to exchange, to trade. And Britain had, the first drug wars, of course, were fought by us trying to force the Chinese to buy opium, the opium wars, and there'd become a change round. China eventually allowed us to sell opium after we'd fought two wars and they lost, we won, we sold the opium. They started producing their own opium. America which has always had this kind of puritanical strand, as much as it's also one of the biggest using drug-using nations in the world, America was keen to maybe suck up to become friendly and trade with China. America also inherited at that time, after the Spanish-American War, the Philippines, and the Philippines had a major problem with opium addiction and opium dens. So America becomes very anti-opiates. It's seen as foreign, it's seen as something that immigrants bring into the country. So what you have is Western powers beginning to turn against opiates, 
products of the coca cocaine variety and derivatives and cannabis or um, marijuana as it's called in America you get a turning against these products now these products were seen by America and to some extent the rest of us as external, alien. They came from other countries into our country, whereas alcohol can be brewed anywhere from sort of plants to uh, wheat and grain and so on. It's, it's, an, it's a substance that occurs everywhere. So the menu of substances that became controlled was the menu of substances that the powers that were the predominant powers, the hegemonic powers at the time. And that was America and the Western European countries. And so the drugs that we produced, tobacco and alcohol, were accepted, although America did subsequently go on to prohibit alcohol. And other drugs were prohibited. It's partly also that at that time... Democracy is spreading, particularly in the West. People's awareness of the impact of drugs is growing. It's useless to pretend that there aren't adverse impacts of drugs. And people were becoming aware of addiction, more aware of it. Pressure groups were developing among the professions, the medical profession. Pharmacy was developing as a profession, seeking to control people's access to drugs. So a particular menu of drugs that suited our economic interests, by ours I mean Western capitalist countries, was the end product. It's not because those drugs are more dangerous. In, your, in the book, somewhere you, you quote Milton Friedman, mm. um, that well-known yes. Chicago school <laughs> economist, beloved of certain ideologues, but you quote him as describing the prohibition as the drug dealer's best friend. Just talk a little bit about how you see that stacking up. In my mind, I'm writing another essay or article called Prohibition and Its Discontents. And so I kind of thought, who are its contents? Who is happy with prohibition? And of course... The people who make big money out of it. If you were a terrorist and you wanted money to fund your activities, why go and rob a bank? It's so easy to sell drugs. It's so easy because there's a big market of people out there who want to use drugs. So you turn to drug production. If you are criminal intent and want to make easy money, why rob a bank? Why rob a jeweler's shop? Why not just sell drugs? Because it's so easy. And that's why it's the sort of the drug dealer's best friend. It's easy. The chances of getting caught are very slim, as we know. About 10% is interdicted. And it's just easy money because you and your customer both want to commit the crime. Let's move on then and think that the United States has been at the vanguard of international prohibition you know, since years, it's decades ago. The global power positions are now, the tectonic plates are realigning to some degree, economically and politically. We're seeing Brazil, we're seeing China, India, and places like that beginning to become more stronger economically, stronger 
politically. And in South America, we're seeing change in drug policy. Talk us through about why you think that might be happening now and where you might see that going and in, in this international dialogue, because we are dealing with a global phenomenon. If I take South America, one of the changes I think that's taken place is the growing strength of their economies. Countries like Colombia, Brazil, not so much Central America, but Mexico, their growing economies means that they are able to answer back. When you have things like certification over aid from the United States, Colombia has been decertificated for not towing the line with drug policy. Countries were dependent on the United States. Some of them are becoming less so now. That's one thing. A second reason is they're beginning to say, well, hang on a minute. You're fighting the drug war on our territory. We're the ones where people are getting shot. We're the ones with corrupt states, corrupt forces, corrupt police, and so on. But it's your people who are using the drugs. Perhaps you should take a little look and have a rethink. I remember watching a programme about David Sands, and I quote him in my book, and he's saying, the whole world regards drugs as noxious. And I thought, actually, an awful lot of your countrymen clearly don't, because they are snorting coke like it's going out of fashion. And OK, the market's levelled off in America, but the fact is that people use drugs all over the world. And it's not necessarily the producer countries that have the major problem, it's the consumer countries. Picking on that, just focusing on that group who have become dependent in the popular parlance of become addicts. Mm. Going back to your managing the problem, I could hear Mr Angry from Tunbridge Wells <laughs> saying, well, that's their problem. They, they got themselves into this, don't do the crime if they don't want to do the time. And we manage, we have to manage that. They're not going to get a job. And I this is the way that we manage it. Now, this would not be a unfamiliar I argument. I agree, and I was reading something by Peter Hitchens on the way up saying, you know, we haven't really fought the drug war and that's the problem. And I can see that there is an argument. I think you could make an argument that we've never really been serious about it. And if you want to see a successfully fought drug war, OK, go to China under communist China. Yes, you can fight drugs. You can kill people who use drugs. You can kill people who sell drugs. You can wipe out enough people and people will stop using them. Sure, you can do that. But you have to balance that. Do you want an autocratic society where you wipe out every kind of weakness? Or do you want a liberal society where you say, yeah, some people are really crap, they don't manage their lives, they're going to take drugs. Does it really matter? Well, perhaps it doesn't if we're prepared to pay for it. You're talking about changing culture. Do you think society is shifting to see drugs and drug use more as a, a health challenge, a public yes. health challenge than perhaps in the past. Yes, I think they are. That's all part of what I mean by a changing climate of opinion. I decided in that book when somebody, one of the readers of it, said it was very polemical for legalisation. 
I, I wanted to say it's not polemical for legalisation. I would never fit with transform, for instance. I am much more tentative, pragmatic, try a little bit of this, try a little bit of that. And certainly I am strongly down the public health. Let's deal with addicts as a public health problem. If we channeled more money into addictions, I'm fairly confident that if we provided the right kind of analytical behavioural therapy support for addicts, that it would have a much greater effect on being able to treat addiction. But it's very expensive. And if you're a politician, how do you sell training lots of really, really good drug workers who can work individually with a client very, very regularly and let them do writing therapy and all this kind of thing? How do you sell that to people who've got relatives with cancer who want frontline medical treatment? Politicians have to sell a policy to a taxpayer. I remember being at a conference where the then Minister for Drugs, I've forgotten his name, but I mentioned him in the book, he's the one who came out in favour of changing everything after he wasn't a minister anymore. People kept asking him, why is all the treatment going into the prison service? It should be outside. And I thought, because he can sell it as a law and order issue. He cannot sell it as a public health issue. You've got to understand politicians have got to... They haven't got money. We've got money. They've got to sell it to us. They've got to make us buy into that policy. But could I put it to you that, a bit like sheep stealing, was on the statute book for many a decade after they stopped tackling and, I don't know, putting people in the stocks and, and sending them off to Australia... And the law withered on the vine. Letting a law wither on the vine is a very, very pragmatic it solution. Is. And that's my and a way what's to a way to manage. And do you think that is in effect what what we are seeing? I think for people? I think we are gradually seeing it. I think we're already seeing it. This is one thing I do agree with Peter Hitchens over, is that we've had decriminalisation by the back door. We don't need to rush about and do what Portugal's doing. We're doing it. We've been doing it for a while. Britain created harm minimisation way back in the 1920s with the Rolston Report, which was all about prescribing for addicts. Perhaps we need to do a bit more of that. But there is a, a new political paradigm now of recovery in this country, which... Um, some would argue, is very ideologically driven to an abstinence. What would you say to those ideologues that champion this line of argument? I think recovery would be wonderful for anybody who can achieve it. But I don't think you can just prescribe recovery for people and it's going to happen. Recovery is the new political rhetoric. It's shaping everybody in the sense that everybody has that word now on their agenda towards recovery. But everybody who works in the field knows that there are people for whom recovery isn't going to happen. Or if it's going to happen, it's going to happen as they mature out of it. Or some other life change happens that's nothing to do with their substance misuse. And they recover. And that's good. I, I think having recovery is... A, is is a good idea, but I'm not sure that even politicians believe it. Now, one area 
that we've not touched upon and you're talking about recovery and cure there these can often be conflated and confused but most people would think you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and recovery what role sort of formalized education about substances and about prevention efforts what role do they play do you think from your research that you've Research suggests that drugs education actually has a negligible impact at all. I've talked to a lot of students who, unlike me, have been a generation who've had drugs education. And the problem with education, I think it's good, I think you should put it in, but it may not stop. Anybody who's really going to use drugs is probably going to use them anyway. So... I'm not sure, but I think education is a good idea, but it should be honest. That, no, you're probably not going to die if you use these drugs. You could if you're unlucky. You could if you're unlucky and you eat peanuts and you happen to be the sort of person who's got peanut allergy. But drugs can really mess up your life and the life of those around you. And I think probably the best education is to mix with people who've used drugs and let them tell their own story and let them just share what's happened to them and what they wouldn't like to see happen to you. Here we are doing this interview the day before the American elections. There are a couple of things, aren't there? One is about the global reach of the American president in this whole issue. But also, there's, um, we stand on the cusp, there's three states, I think, that have local or statewide S- referendum. Yeah on legalising cannabis? I doubt it'll get through. It didn't in California in the last one. It was very, very close. But might that change? Might that be a game-changer, as they say? I think it's part of a changing game, to be honest. And I think the game-changing has been going on. You could say the real game-changer was perhaps the Netherlands when it began to sort of take a liberal policy. You could then say Portugal carried the torch, now you've got South America. It's a growing kind of climate of opinion that feels that we might have got this drugs thing wrong and maybe we need to think again. Or And I'm happy with your wither on the vine idea. I think that's quite good. But I think that, yes, the drug laws are partly withering, certainly in this country, and have been for a long time. We've never, perhaps we've never really taken it terribly seriously. We've always regarded it as a bit of a nuisance. It's a practical thing. We're pragmatic people. We're not ideal ideologues about it. We don't sort of think drugs are wicked and you shouldn't do them, end of story. Let's finish with one last pragmatic question. And you're the pragmatist. Right. And... There you were elected to Parliament and you've suddenly found yourself Prime Minister. What would you do about the drugs problem? If I had the resources, I would provide much, much better treatment for people who become addicted to drugs. And I would not police possession of drugs at all. And I would introduce testing of drugs. So there's a bit of a sleight of hand, as in Holland and Netherlands, where... You can test drugs for purity and 
try and minimise harm as much as possible health-wise for people. But you'd still keep them controlled? And I'd always keep them regulated, like legal drugs. I, I think they do need regulation. Yes, I think anything that can be harmful needs regulation, but I think putting people in prison for doing it, for using these things, is nonsense. You know, we look back at Ballard in Reading Jail and things like that, and we think, did we really put people in prison for homosexuality? We'll say in 20 years' time, did we really put people in prison for possession of drugs? Sue Price, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Roger.